Hi there. Welcome to New to the Table from She Sources. Since it's my first episode, I figure I should introduce myself. So hi, my name is Autumn Hart. I use any and all pronouns, so long as you're being respectful. And I'm a member of the She Sources team. I'm so excited to start this new journey with you guys here today. Hey there. Welcome to New to the Table from She Sources. Since it's my first episode, I figure I should introduce myself here. So hi. My name is Autumn Hart. I use any and all pronouns, so long as you're being respectful, of course. And I'm a member of the She Sources team. I'm so excited to start this new journey with everyone, especially you here today, because representation in the entertainment industry is a conversation that is more relevant than ever, honestly. Like, it's 2023. We all see the landscape of what entertainment looks like right now. And more so, I think we're in a place where we're looking at how amazing it really can be. So I think this is such a pivotal time in order to have these kinds of conversations. And as a gender nonconforming queer artist, I mean, of course, this is conversations that allow me a place at the table, but more importantly, other individuals who don't typically have that space to have that space. So it's a huge passion of mine within any work I do. So I am just so grateful for this opportunity to be joining everyone here on New to the Table. Now, since New to the Table is like industry coffee chats you have, I am going to tell you my little coffee order. And I say coffee order, but that's kind of a stretch because I right now have been actually getting a lot of London fogs, especially if it's a coffee shop, they'll make a London fog and put lavender in it because it's my favorite. But if I have to get coffee, I'll probably get an iced latte with lavender and oat milk because I am a screaming stereotype. So yeah, I'm so excited to start this here today. And it's a really awesome episode too because I get to talk to Victoria Flores. Victoria is the executive producer and writer on the indie horror film coming soon called Candlewood. She's also the co-founder of wellness and beauty brand Lux Beauty Club Botanicals, transitioning over to entrepreneurship after a successful career on Wall Street. As if she wasn't already doing it all, she is the first Latina to lead a horror film franchise. Quick background about the movie. Candlewood is inspired by true events that occurred in New Milford, Connecticut. It follows a fictional family who moves out of New York City to what they think will be their safe haven upgrade only to unravel after a New Milford urban legend is revealed to them. They filmed it and wrapped and are waiting for a release date. I'm a huge horror fan. She makes horror film. So you could say I was glowing. And it'll definitely get you in the spirit to make some cool stuff here this fall. I could say as such, my name is literally Autumn. So I speak it into existence here now. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I can't wait to talk to you about just everything you do because <laughs> you do so much. It's exhausting. <laughs> My first question is, when people ask you, what do you do? What do you tell them? I'm a business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm just kind of a busy body, really. You know, if you have something that you need to get done, give it to a busy person because I definitely love starting a project and seeing it through and executing it and having it come to fruition. Why do you like to do what you do? I think that for me, starting my own business was kind of more about freedom, the freedom to be able to spend time with my family and still have a successful business. Obviously, it's a long road to do that, but really just to call your own shots and be able to do what it is that you want to do 
from a business perspective, but also from a creative perspective. And how did you get here? Your your journey, I guess, is more- yeah. I mean, I have a business partner that is, you know, we're in the beauty and wellness space, and she has been an incredible business partner, sister. We work really well together. She's a registered nurse, so I think that we just kind of followed our journey of creating products that we know work for women that are for women by women. Um, but that being said, part of the whole freedom puzzle is that you're able to do other projects that really are passionate for you and can really see them through. And even though it's very hard work, you tend to figure it out. For me, it was dipping into film. I always wanted to do, do a horror film. I'm a big horror fanatic, which is kind of strange and odd. My husband thinks I'm so bizarre when he walks into my office and I'm working on my computer and there's this horror movie playing in the background. <laughs> I'm like, it's research, it's research. That was always kind of a lifelong dream. Early on and when I was 18, I I was leaving home in Texas and I thought, oh, I'm going to go to LA and be an actress. And my parents said, that's cute. You're off the payroll. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to school, to college and business school. And so film and and that part of it was always something in me that I, I wanted to explore at some point or another, obviously not acting, but producing and creating a project from scratch, which is basically like almost starting a company from scratch and hiring people and talent and all that. It comes with so many ups and downs and hiccups and and especially in the fundraising portion. But I'd always done fundraising for my company. So I knew what it took, but it's still the same obstacles, to be honest, as a female in fundraising for anything is a very big challenge. Do you think there was any particular things you said yes, or I guess no to even that really helped push you further into where you are now? Yeah, I kind of come from a place where I want to say yes to so many things because it kind of builds character and not everything's always worked out, but at least you've learned lessons from something, from a failure, from a pivot, whatever it is. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's it's uh, it's very challenging. I've been humbled for sure making this movie. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> I was always like, I got this, you know, sure. I can multitask and whatever. But it, it, it was really kind of like, where's our executive producer? Oh, she's uh, huddled in the, you know, in the fetal position in the corner sucking her thumb because something fell through or something didn't happen. My background is finance before I started my business. So you have to be really tough on the trading desk. And I was at Morgan Stanley for a long time. So you have to be very tough and and there's no crying in finance, right? Unless you like, you know, lose millions and millions and then whatever. So dealing with artists and creatives like this during the film process was very interesting. I mean, at one point I'm like, oh, the crew's more sensitive than the talent. And you learn a lot. That's for sure. I mean, everyone, this was their hundredth movie and it was my first. It was definitely a big learning curve experience. You say you'll never do it again, but of course we have two more scheduled in this franchise. So we kind of have to get this off our books and then start fundraising or have a production studio for the second for the second movie. How did you find these collaborators, whether it be the talent or the crew too, for this feature? That's a great question because, you know, it started during COVID. A friend of mine and I, you know, Joseph Patrick Humbra, we wrote the script during COVID and it's, it changed. It had a lot of iterations, obviously, because we were no longer in COVID and we're shooting in 2022. And we thought, having that aspect of COVID will kind of make it look dated. It's been two years in the making. My co-executive producer died in 2021. Oh my goodness. And he, this was going to be a seventh film. He had done successful movies all under a million that made money. So he was really kind of the big fundraiser. He'd done this before. So 
we kind of had a come to Jesus moment after he passed. We're like, what are we going to do now? And thankfully, his widow actually was one of our biggest investors. She gave us a big chunk because it's in his his memory. And he was so excited about this one because he knew this was going to be the best one out of his entire career. And we worked really well together. So then meeting Mike Furman, who is our director, once we got together with him, he had just come off two feature films in the area. He also is a great editor. He has been assistant. He was kind of ready for prime time. So he got this big directorial debut and he hired all the crew. He rounded out everyone that we needed. Very small crew, obviously, even at 20 people. I'm like, oh my God, 20 people on a crew. Like I'm like shaking. I'm like, how? <laughs> That's going to be a lot. Managing different personalities is tough, but he really knocked it out of the ballpark. Once he was on board, we were like, oh Jesus, we have 20 people now signed on. <laughs> There's no backing out of this. <laughs> it's we have to do this. Yeah, well, we have to make this movie now. Holy shit. And then we kind of started, you know, we started doing some press because the local and New Milford, there's a lot of our movies based on actual stories and events and folklore in the area. And there's a lot of that in this area, Connecticut in general, just because the whole puritanical early settlers and there's a lot of Native American, indigenous tribes in the area. Once we got press and we we thought, oh my God, let's launch an Indiegogo because there's so many people that want to be a part of this that can't do $10,000 minimum investment, but can do 500. So we added these really cool perks about having walk-on roles that halfway through the campaign, we had to turn it off because we had too many people as extras. <laughs> To be in the movie, I'm like, oh my God, there's like, no, we have to put a marathon of runners in this one scene because we have so many people now that want to be in this movie. So that was pretty fun. And we did a lot of radio and TVs. It helped the campaign. And we hit our goal within 15, 16 days out of the actual 33 days that we had scheduled. And it was so fun raising during the movie. We had to scramble at the end because we had a big investor get caught up in the crypto scandal, FTX, and fell out. Oh my God, you can. Oh, yeah. Oh, and everyone I talked to is like, that's indie. That's yeah. your first movie. You have to big borrow and steal. And, and you know, I put in a bunch of my own money in it. So did Mike. We have a sales agent, which is hard to do on your first one. And he's already got a lot of big distributors that are interested in seeing the screener, which is good. That's so, that's so, so exciting. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so it's much happening. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy when this is closed out. <laughs> And I can sleep at night. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> I've lost, I think, 15 pounds in this whole process. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, oh. stressful. <laughs> I know. You were talking about crowdfunding before, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just so blown away by all of that. For filmmakers trying to produce maybe their own features or yeah. short, perhaps, what advice do you have on how they can explore funding their project with crowdfunding? I mean, you have to set a reasonable goal. Um, I just had another friend who shot a movie. They're done. And he put up GoFundMe or, or one of them for like a hundred grand. I'm like, oh my God, Scott, like it's really, I mean, I get it. You want to get that much, but you're not, it's hard. You can't, you have to tap into your own network. You have to somehow have the grassroots. We, For us, thankfully, we had a lot of press and we went viral on Facebook with the campaign. And thankfully, New Milford, Connecticut, who knew, is a big horror film fan base. So we literally immediately, you know, we had buy tickets to the premiere that sold out. We're going to do probably a premiere in on Bank Street, which is this old theater, really cool in the town. We tapped into a lot of kind of local resources and, and we kind of just did it as like, 
a, a fluke because they talked about us on the radio and we're like, we have to capitalize on this. We were still using the old little trailer that we made in 2021 and it worked. It really kind of took a village. It really took a village. You have to have a lot of that network already and be reasonable on what they're going to give you and keep them up to date. Always mm-hmm. keep them up to date for sure. But like I said, for us, it worked because it was local kind of hometown. Uh, having a, a whole community back yes. your project. <laughs> yes. And, and literally, we left no stone unturned. Like we went to the Commission on the Arts and pitched them and they gave us $2,500, right? So we went to all these sources that we thought would help us and they did. And the mayor was super supportive. He's a big horror, horror film fan too. I said, do you want me to change the name of the town in the, in the movie? And he said, absolutely not. I want people to come up here looking for these places. And we thought, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It made me want to go there to seeing the trailer. I was yeah. Like, like the, and all those places are real. That's why it's great. The places are real. The legends are real. And, you know, we say obviously inspired by true events because a lot of the stories have been told are supposed to be real, but the legend of Lover's Leap, the, the indigenous woman is most likely a Pocahontas trope written by the colonizer, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they always are. So we kind of wanted to bring attention to that. This white savior is, you know, saving this indigenous woman that like, as we know, this is like 1600s, like they would want to marry within their tribe. This like, white savior that she's in love with that story has been told over and over again so we thought mm-hmm. why is that right and we consulted with the Scaticoke tribe um deeply to make sure we got everything right and you know we even said how would you do this this way and he's like no we would do it this way so then we rewrote some parts for that because we still wanted to be authentic also sensitive to that story how do you think telling that story in the lens of a horror feature will bring new awareness to audiences. Calling out stereotypes through comedy, through kind of fun wording or fun, you know, fun dialogue. It makes people go, oh, I never thought of that. We kind of use a lot of teaching moments that don't hit you over the head. We still wanted to make it fun because in the end, it's still a horror movie. Right. Right. But we did want to make it uh, known that this land was their land. Right. And that's why we have a horror poster that now says, you know, they were here first. Who's now the custodian of this land? Like now who's taking care of this land for the next generation? So we kind of touch a little bit about that in the movie. That's so interesting. With this franchise that you're building and this first feature, what was the writing process like through it all? We use Final Draft, which is um, a great program. It's funny because it originally started as just this fun horror movie. But then Mike and I got a hold of it and we kind of sat down and and Joseph and all three of us kind of sat together and thought, well, we still kind of need a message. Yes, I get it that it's going to be a fun horror film. And of course, when you write scripts, there's like 30 million different colors of like edits, right? The green version, the pink version, the yellow version. We wanted to make it more deep and more thought provoking. So there was a lot of editing. I mean, we would sit on the floor and read it to each other and go, well, she wouldn't say this. Like people don't talk like this. So (laughs) we need to make sure that, you know, the way they spoke was kind of the way we spoke and make it modern. Mm modern right like the daughter's always on her phone and she's got a girlfriend and everyone's very accepting of it because that's kind of how it is it's not like anyone's upset that she's a girlfriend Um, (laughs) a blended family 
both parents divorced, that kind of thing. And just leaving the city because of crime and they just want a better life. They want more space. They want better schools, whatever it was. And kind of to touch on what we're going through now as people. I think with this whole migration of COVID and everyone leaving to do that, right? To kind of find more space and kind of their family. Now they realize that work isn't the only thing. They can now spend time with their family and 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 have a bigger house and move out and you don't have to be in these clusters of area. And I think that everyone's just kind of, everyone will relate that why this family decided to leave New York for this better life. So they think. <laughs> <laughs> you have put down like in your Insta bio, for instance, that you're a horror film junkie yes. and with previous horror films that you've loved. What what influences were brought into this script? Look, horror is hor- formulaic. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it just is, right? There, there, there is a way, like sometimes I'm like halfway through and I'm like, oh, I figured it out. You know, they're formulaic. And I think that's why people love them so much and has a built-in audience. And, and although this is a passion project for us, it wasn't a vanity project. Like we still want to make money for our investors. That's number one is to make our investors money. Create green content, but make our investors money as well as make our own money back. That's mm-hmm. why by keeping the budget low and has a bigger, higher ROI, higher return on investment at that point. Everyone knows that horror is like post-pandemic is kind of basically saved theater, right? I mean, look at Smile, look at Barbarian. People just want their horror no matter what. A lot of different movies kind of work. My influence, Hereditary is a masterpiece. Ari Aster is just like, oh my God. But Hereditary was that one movie that when I watch them on my color grading, sound, com- you know, the composite, like everything about it is just so spectacular, especially the casting. Part of knowing that what a formula works and when to have the right uh, jump scares and, and, and at the end always kind of you have to uh, you know, I've seen Dark and the Wicked is also an incredible, one of my most amazing, I love this movie, but when you end it, you literally are like, what just happened? <laughs> I have zero idea what just happened. I know the audiences kind of like it wrapped up at the end when there's still a little question that there's still an opening for the second one, but it's still like, oh, okay, that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to make sure we gave the audience that at the end, but still have it be a little ambiguous on how exactly they're tied together. That's so exciting. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, and by the way, I, I hear it all the time. And even with fundraising, right? I mean, even as like a female, as a Latina raising for my own beauty and wellness, you know, you see a bunch of dudes get millions as a pre-seed, mm-hmm. which means they don't even have anything. It's like just an idea and as women, we have to be so far out already. We have to be making millions in sales and shit in order for like you to get money, right? I feel that in fundraising and film was the same thing. It would have been a lot easier if I was just some dude. <laughs> for Candlewood, this will be the first ever Latina-led horror feature film. Franchise. Yeah, because we've planned two more. How does that feel? I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, Jason Blum got in trouble a little while ago saying that there's no females in horror because it's so untrue, right? But there's definitely now just starting to, even though I'm not director, but I'm just starting to see Latinas as directors because we have a lot of awesome Spanish directors, Latino directors. I love Guillermo del Toro. I mean, all all of them, right? And so many also Mexican directors, but it's very few and far between for female Spanish 
Latina directors. So I've seen a little bit more of that. I think Blumhouse is definitely buying a lot of those movies. He's redeeming himself and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we check the box, we'll take it, right? (laughs) We'll take it, we'll take it. And I know we've been hinting at it and I would love to dive more deeply into this. Have you ever faced disrespect in this industry and how did you cope with it? What have you in the, in the film industry? Yeah. Yeah. So that's funny you ask that. <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, everyone that I reached out to was it, first of all, nobody wants to help you. Every someone that's already in this business does not want to help you. Mm-hmm. It's very it's very, very, very difficult for them. They just don't. It's very strange. I mean, I had a gentleman whose daughter actually is in our movie and connected me with this big female producer. And she's like, so female power, blah, 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 blah. Wouldn't talk to us. And she's like, I don't do horror. Okay. Okay. So, and then I had a gentleman, actually a Latino gentleman who does a lot of things, who lives in LA and he's very connected, was frankly rude, which I thought, okay. That's that's how you're gonna do it. Okay, that's cool. Very, very interesting. I, 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 yeah. Where I'm like, wow, that's okay. <laughs> Mental note: put him on the yeah. list. <laughs> My list later. is long. My list is long. <laughs> <laughs> Grudge much? No, but. Yeah. <laughs> But my, you know, I just kind of, you kind of just lock them in the back and go, okay, you keep going, right? Even though we had so many ups and downs, it's one of those things. It might be another year. Hmm. If you wait for everything to be perfect and to like everything to line up, then you, you know, we're waiting until next October and then whatever. You have to, you know, just quick and dirty and do what you can to get there. Once it's out and, and, you know, you know, I don't, I know it's going to be successful. Then we'll see, like, it'll be very interesting on who wants to talk to you then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Is that just the way? <laughs> yes, exactly. As a creative and the president of Lux Beauty Club Botanicals, yep. how do you balance running a company with your creative pursuits? You have to be very specific on what your tasks are that day. Thankfully, my other business, I have two founders that help a lot as well. But I'm literally in my office all day long, you know, making phone calls, talking to vendors, whatever it is, like new suppliers, manufacturers, buyers, our brokers that are trying to get us into, you know, Publix or Walmart, that kind of stuff. So it all kind of takes time, but you just manage it. I mean, I like being busy all day and making magic, as I say. But it's good because especially with film being my passion and the project that I really want to succeed more than anything, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. You see the building blocks as how they're happening. And that seems, that's very exciting to me. You're like, oh, it can be done. (laughs) Look, it's happening. It can be done. (laughs) Right. Again, if it was easy, everyone would do it. So (laughs) exactly. Based on this process and what you've observed so far, what you've experienced, what are some top three skills, let's say, that you think a producer could have? Definitely managing a budget, yeah. managing a budget, managing people and still preserving the integrity of the creative project that you see. You've wrapped and yeah. you're taking meetings with distributors, balancing post-production. Yeah. It's still fundraising. Still fundraising. <laughs> yeah. Was balancing all of that been like? Nightmare. 
I'm like, I'm still alive. I've lost 15 pounds. <laughs> and my director's like, trust me, the second one, you're going to actually have fun doing it. I'm like, oh God, I hope so. Because <laughs> all of it has to work in tandem. And it's almost like chicken and egg thing. You can't get a distribution deal until your movie's done. Mm -hmm. And you want to finish your movie, but you still need some more financing to finish the movie to get a screener. So thankfully, Mike is a great editor. As we raise more money, too, we'll have a final edit from a third party. So as we wrap up here, I'm going to do a little speed round with you, which is always yep. really fun. Just throwing some quick questions your way. First, what was your favorite thing you've watched recently, whether it be film, TV, I have a couple. I've watched Cabinet of Curiosities from Guillermo del Toro, which is really amazing. At first, it kind of threw me off when he walked in all Hitchcockian, you know, where he, where he presented each anthology, each vignette. But it's funny because by the fifth male director, I'm like, where are the women? And then he had a couple. Did you notice that? There was like a couple. Yeah. There's a couple. And I thought, okay, fine. Like, but <laughs> yes, but by the fifth one, I was like, okay, okay, now there's a woman. But anyways, I also just saw The Descendants, which is a uh, documentary on Netflix about the last slave ship, the Clotilda, that was brought in and they found it at the bottom of, I can't remember, maybe the Mississippi, where the slave owner had actually burned it for no evidence because it had already been passed. They abolished it on a dare, on a bet. He says that he can go to Africa and steal, you know, and, and buy some slaves and bring them to his plantation. And he did. It's quite horrendous and horrible. The documentary is actually all the descendants from Kojo Lewis, who was the last descendant of the Clotilda. And he lived to like 1960. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I think it's, I have that one on my to-watch list. Now oh my God, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely fantastic. You have to watch it. It's bananas. What was the last book you read? Well, after watching this, I went and bought the uh, Zora Neale Hurston book, Barracoon, where she actually interviewed Kojo Lewis right before he died as the last descendant of the Clotilda. And it's actually written the way he speaks it. So it takes a minute. This is, this is why it wasn't published back when she wrote it. And it mm -hmm. just got published now recently. It's pretty, pretty incredible. Last one. If you could tell a younger version of yourself one thing, what would it be? Oh, God, probably just do it. Yeah, just do it. Don't be scared. It's OK to fail because you learn from those lessons. I, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial background. I think if my parents knew that, you know, they're immigrants. So they were like, keep your head down, go to school make money in doing your trade. But I think for me, selling whatever little knickknacks I was selling in middle school didn't kind of click for them that, oh, she wants to be a business owner. If I'd started this earlier, I always say I would have been a billionaire by now. <laughs> but I think that teaching your kids early on that they can do something like that. And that's kind of their skill set that I think is helpful. And I think that it's just do it no matter what anybody tells you. Thank you so much for chatting Thank you. with me. It's been so nice, so enlightening. I am beyond excited to see this movie. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs>